Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. We're trying to figure out what sort of win that was by Munster. Aside from the obvious that it was gutsy and it was great, uh, where does... Let's start this again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, from the top. Okay. Beep! And that's Terry Melcher's favourite sound. Munster, a rugby team based in the Southern <laughs> <laughs> The definition of monster. <laughs> I was listening to a rugby podcast uh, and a rugby podcast commentator said, Munster are getting back to where they were. Having won the URC, they're going somewhere. Where, where were they? And where are they going to? Well, they were in... Because per- getting back to where they were, I, I think the implication was getting back to being, like, a tournament-winning team. But, like, where they have been for the last six, seven years is a team that loses meekly in the semifinals, and they've changed so much now. Yeah, like, where they were, to sort of establish the tournament, where they were at the start of the season was a team who had a completely new coaching setup. And we're trying to find their feet and playing a very different game than the play the way they played for you know four and a half years under Van Granen. Probably quite similar to the way they played with uh, Razi. Um, so they've come an awful long way in in a short period of time, and they showed uh, a very good fighting spirit in those games. But they also showed a renewed. Uh, not renewed. They also showed a new um, style of how Munster look like they've been. They showed this a good example of how they've been trying to play all season uh, in both the um, semi final and, and the final. So I don't know. Like I remember the first time that Munster were in transition, which was like. 13 years ago and I remember that phrase was just always being said for year on year on year and they never it never didn't it never transpired there's a long time at the chrysalis yeah well no it wasn't that like it this is not they've been changing all this time like they they didn't get to where they were trying to get to in the last time they were in transition and then they went through a period of of being a semi-final team while a lot of lads were sort of peak age grade, age group rather, uh, and it looked like they'd missed their spot. 
So now they've there's still some of those older guys, quite quite a number of those older guys like Archer O'Mahony, um, Conor Murray, Keith Earls. They're still around. Uh, and I thought that they had missed their chance at winning medals for Munster, uh, maybe maybe even two seasons ago. So um, I'm actually delighted for, I think I would say like everyone, delighted for Keith Earls especially. But you know, it's it's good for Conor Murray and, and O'Mahony and, and Archer. And like, Archer's been around there forever. Like he's going to probably next season take over from Duncho Callan's Munster's most capped player of all time. I think they're back in the... I don't know, the jubilant good graces of the brave and faithful. So I think that, you know, look, they've, they've always been a well-supported team, Munster, but I think there's probably like a bit of swagger uh, from the southern part of the country is is back again. I think there's a real enjoyment, the, the fact that there's, there's a lot of that team are from Munster. Um, I think one of the characteristics of the last decade is there's been a lot of the team at different stages, not from Munster. There've been, you know, a lot of South Africans and a lot of guys from Leinster, um, which is, you know, which is probably pain people. Whereas when you see Casey and Crowley and Nash and Hodnett and Coombs and, you know, all these guys, and then there's more behind them, like Rune Quinn and Gleeson and a Dogbo and Tom Ahern. And like, it's very exciting that you'd be supporting these guys who are, who are monster guys. Um, so I think that's, that's probably the first bit of, of where they're back. You know, they're giving people a day out. They're giving people trips to go on. Um, and there's, there's an affinity with the players and then there's, there's a style of rugby that's, uh, well, like it's winning. So I don't know. Like if there's yes. a style of rugby that's easy to cheer for. Like there's wins to cheer for, but there's, there is a style of rugby there. Like there's, there's a bit of a cussedness. There's, there's a stickiness. Um, so one of my pals who's like, who's a Limerick man, I suppose. Um, although he's lived everywhere in the country except Limerick, but his, his, his people are from Limerick. Um, was was nervous, but very nervous before. He sort of like, you know, look, are, are the Stormers too strong up front and too too fast out wide and too far from home for Munster for, you know, before the match, like nervous and even at halftime kind of, well, you know, like are we far enough ahead? Have we squandered some of the tries? And I was just like, nah, fitness is going to win this. Like Munster are fitter. That, that'll be the that'll be the winning of it. And... um. You know, when when you're kind of a bit more removed from it, like I, I thought it was great and I was really happy for Irish rugby. But um, you know, you can only pin one set of colours to the mast and mine aren't red. So like uh but it was great to see. Like it, it was it was a cool win. Um great style of rugby, really good for Ireland. Like I think that what struck me about the whole tournament win was it was real knockout rugby. And it was it, it was that sort of thing that I'd often think about the World Cup is that you don't need to be the best team in the world. You just need to be the best team at the tournament at the time. So, like, if you look at the way that Ulster's season went and Ulster finished second in the table, but, like, it was a bit of a damn squib. And, you know, there's kind of Petri was there and he was talking about, well, you know, we had a big squad and, yeah, like, it was pretty difficult for some guys uh, who were unhappy so like he, he's admitting to like those rumors that were coming out about the dissatisfaction between I don't know playing and coaching staff. Like he he was basically admitting like yeah the, like 
it is like that. It was like that. Um, and they finished second. So sort of on that longer term consistency, like Ulster did better. But at the sharp end, Munster did. And like Munster got the glory. So I think that's very important because immediately after the Heineken Cup final, you could see the English journals twist the knife into the Irish guys. Like first opportunity they got. It was like, well, like Leinster are basically the Ireland team. And you've just lost a home to a club team. So, like, I mean, you must be worried about the World Cup. And you're there going, uh, yeah, but, like, there isn't a World Cup team with Skelton Aldrich playing in it and coached by Ron Rogares. So if you flip it and then go, okay, well, Munster just won the URC in South Africa against South African opposition. Now, can you add any players to that team? And then you go through about nine additions that you would make and you go comfortably and you go, that obviously makes them stronger. And they're not all Leinster guys, but like, you know, drop in, they are mainly Leinster guys, but like drop in Mac Hansen there as well. Drop in Bundy a key to that team. So I think that's very good for Irish rugby that you can kind of counter any of the question marks about like, oh, Leinster equals Ireland and goes, well, you know, it equals a lot of Ireland, but it isn't the only thing that's going on. And it's a reminder that picking players that are in form is like is really important. So Crowley timed his run and like showed the chutzpah that you need to show as a number 10. And there's often been, I'm trying to think of the exact sort of cliche that I want to say, but it's not like, you know, nobody, Johnny isn't going to hand his jersey to anybody. Someone's going to have to tear it off his back. And they would have said the same about Agara beforehand, and they would have said the same about Davy Humphreys beforehand, that somebody needs to stand up and be the man in that situation. Like that, you can't just inherit and inherit the jersey and, and let the magic happen. Like the jersey doesn't imbue you with magical powers. So the sort of, the big match bona fides that, that Crowley displayed in the knockout rounds as well as like, you know, the sort of the fundamental stuff like staying square, surveying his options. And really what I liked the most about it was he reminded me of Aaron Rodgers. Like, and, you know, maybe there's other quarterbacks. I don't watch a huge amount of NFL, but I watched Aaron Rodgers play a match at Christmas time, like in the last decade at some stage. And he held on to the ball until he got hit. And he released it just before he got hit. And I was there thinking, Jesus, like, the rest of his team must love playing for him. His O-line must love him because whatever they're going through, he's prepared to take all of their work and take the hit and get up and get them going forward. And you're going like, I'll play for a guy like that. So Crowley plays kind of flat to the line, but like he's he's willing to wait until just before he gets hit to offload the ball. So he makes their defense move. You can't just shift off him. Like you, you have to mark him and... Uh, Guys just love playing for that. Like everybody, like all his forwards will play for him because of that attribute alone. So then you you put in the cross kick, you put in the kick into the corner, you put in the sort of the coolness over the conversion to milk the clock and you go, they'll definitely play more for him now. You know, so that's that's great timing for Ireland going into a World Cup when you're kind of going, Jesus, Johnny's been injured for, and he's going to be 38. <laughs> like, and you're going, he's, like, he, is he going to play five big matches in a row for 80 minutes? And you're saying, I don't know. But then you're going, Jesus, like, does he need to? You know, like, is 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 this going to be almost the perfect timing of it? So from the, sort of the green jersey perspective, which is always sort of the prism that I view Munster in, um, it's great. It's brilliant. 
Yeah, that's um, I was saying to you earlier that I thought that there was uh, a number of similarities between how Roundtree has um, used his squad in the same way as Pat Lamb did in 2015-16 with uh, Connacht. And I think Crowley rightly is is getting an awful lot of plaudits. He's he's been super. And you know, I remember from the first time that uh, we saw him for the under twenties, just like, oh, Jesus, this guy's has the potential to be an absolutely like a world class uh, out half if he continues on this trajectory. Um, but there's other guys who've really stood up uh, um, over the not just the knockout rounds, like the the very difficult away games that they had in South Africa um, after their loss to the Sharks in the, in the second round of the Heineken Cup. And that's um, Nash, who's been rewarded with a, a spot in the uh, in the Irish World Cup training squad. Um, Shane Daly, who I was just looking at his, um, his stats this morning on the Munster website, he's played so much rugby for Munster this season. Like this, an enormous amount, like eighteen hundred minutes on the nose. You know, he's played eighty-two percent of Munster's entire game time. Like, <clears throat> like I, I would look at those numbers quite a lot, and I go, like eighty-two percent of the available game time. It maybe doesn't sound as as impressive. Quite, it's incredible. Like there are so few players who are going to get over seventy percent. Like that is so many minutes to put in. And it's something, he's been a player who I've always liked. Um, and I, I sort of still think he's playing in the wrong position. But I think he's a better fullback. Yeah. I think fullback's his best position. But Mike Haley's had, like Mike Haley's been Mr. Consistency for yeah. Munster over the last three seasons. Yeah, he really has. Um, but, you know, with outside backs, sometimes I feel that, oh, sometimes I feel, I feel that the more they play, the better that they'll play. Like, um Outside backs don't have to do any scrummaging, any mauling. They have limited amount of tackles to make, limited amount of rucks to go to. It's really about running fitness and and stopping injuring yourself. Don't pull your hamstrings, etc. Don't pull your calf. But the more time that you get in the saddle, I think you end up doing better and better. And the Daly's, I think, proved that this season, as is Nash. Um, like that that monster three quarter line is very easy to pick for round three. You know, it's Fekatoa, Frisch, uh, Nash, Daly, and Haley. Like, that's like he just stuck with that back there. Now, I know Fekatoa missed the game, um, Nash missed the game, but like that's the team that he wanted to pick. And he's able to do that. And you have the same sort of situation at, you know, you've got Archer and Klein and Hodnett and Coombs. So you have that. Guys who get picked game after game after game after game, just like um, just like uh, Pat Lamb used to do with uh, Ali Muldowney and John Muldoon and um, Adge McGinty and, and these guys. He just started going, this is, this is the competition that we're competing for. This is the team that I'm picking. I'm just going to send my team out. And you're going, great coherency in that. And I felt that Munster, they basically picked as close to the same team as they could for about six matches in a row at the end. And you just see the belief and the coherency building. Like one of the things that Murray Kinsel has mentioned a lot is the high ball and play time that Munster have had in their knockout games, all I think in the 
like you know, yeah, 44, 44, 43. Yeah, it equates really well to anything, and or compares really well to anything. And it's it's part of that was there, as you've said before, they're much fitter than they were, but it's also that they have really good coherency. Um, and it's um, you know, a, a really well timed run. Like all of those games were close that they won. That's another thing which makes people like them is like winning close games is great. Makes you oh, feel yeah. great. It makes you feel better than like winning um It's like Hulkamania. Yeah. It's like, you know, winning late and winning close. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're but it comes crashing down and yeah. paints inside or whatever yeah. it is, and you're like then you bounce off the rope and you yeah. do the big wind up and you cup the ear, you cup, cup the hand a up ferocious to the ear. baby face comeback. You know, like yeah. that yeah, that's it. Yeah. I often make the comparison between <clears throat> my beloved Reds, Liverpool, and the other Reds, Munster, the, and uh, my non-Liverpool supporting friends get uh, aggressively wound up by the New Balance marketing slogan, this means more. Mass Keun Club. Um, and I was like, oh, it's just a marketing slogan. It's not like, and it's just written on the wall because it's marketing. Anyway, it's off the point. It seems that uh, Munster winning the ERC does mean more than it, uh, if other teams win it, where you get slightly patronized about the competition when you win it. That's off the point. My question is, is there any sense, it, it, is there any extent to which you could say this is a bit of a freak or do you think that they're, they're, like, they're on a path? Because like they finished fifth in the regular season. No, I think it's not a freak. Uh, I don't think it means that you know, they win it next year automatically or, or that they're going to, you know, have, be back at the, you know, the, like into the final of the Heineken Cup. Like, I'm not saying they won't be, but like there's still, there's still um, pieces to put into that uh, puzzle to get better. Like there's, well, I, I don't know, like go, go through the back five of the scrum with the names they mentioned earlier. And throw in a dog boo, a dog bow, a hern, Rune Quinn, Gleason. So they're all coming through. They're all monster guys, right? Yeah, but the, so, let me just let me just stop you there. The difference though is when you get to playing Toulouse or playing uh, La Rochelle, like you just see it. Like that's a fucking different level of competition than anything in the URC. Well, it's not different than anything. Like Leinster and the South African teams are very strong in the URC. South African teams got fucking rinsed in the European competition. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wasn't really trying but, to insinuate that Munster were lucky per se. I'm just more, I'm just trying to see, is it the kind of culmination of a pattern that's emerged or is it this as a kind of culmination of momentum at the right time of the season? They're not mutually exclusive. Like it is, it is culmination of momentum at the at the right time of the season for sure but i would say that i mean like I, prendergast definitely talked about it during the week said like i didn't think it was going to happen as quickly as this um but i would say it like it's 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 far more the establishment of a pattern now i think that one of the so the English clubs have got weaker, as you can see from the continued financial travails of the Premiership clubs and London Irish is the latest example of that. And Saracens are back winning that league. That, like whatever competition was there over 
Jeez, there wasn't that much competition there over the last decade. Like, well, I suppose Exeter. Exeter were very strong. Exeter won the Heineken Cup. Um, but like Saracens were the dominant team in England. And Saracens are back to being the dominant team in England. But across the board, like the English teams have got weaker. And English rugby's going to have to change its model in some sort of way, be that like just being better at producing their academy players. I mean, that, which could be enough because like they've shitloads of players, right? But the English clubs aren't as strong. There's only a certain number of French teams can get through, but the French teams are very, very strong, right? So Munster actually have a better chance of doing better in Europe next year. The challenge comes when you are battling on two fronts. So I think the URC is a strong competition. Like Leinster are very strong, very, very strong. Um, like certainly within the top two teams of Europe and certainly very, very close to being number one. And the South African teams are very strong. Well, certainly three of them are very strong, right? So the URC is a challenging competition to win for that reason. And Ulster are, are pretty good. And then you go, if you have to play to try to win both of those competitions at the same time, big challenge. So you look at Saracen's winning the league and like you can't really counter that against like what sales challenges were but Saracens didn't have to worry about European knockout rugby um, when they were thinking about their premiership final okay and that that's a sort of an indication of, of the level that English rugby is at the French La Rochelle kind of like the timing of the of the Heineken Cup sits very well for the big French teams because your Toulouse's, and, and now La Rochelle, but your Toulouse's have usually will qualify in the top three in France. They don't have to worry then about the last round or two of the, of the, of the, the top 14. So they can prepare for when the final is in May, and then they can look towards June where they get down to the business end of the bouclier. So, you know, that, that week, that extra week break is, uh, it's well set up for the French clubs. And the French clubs bring all the money. They don't bring all of it. They bring an awful lot of the money. So you can kind of see how they've gamed that situation for themselves. Now, the URC teams don't have that advantage. If you're fighting on two fronts, and Leinster are the obvious example of this. But this is the thing now that, like, I, I think Munster have, have definitely turned, but the issue that Munster will face is that as they get better, they're going to increasingly find themselves battling on two fronts, and that's a challenge. Oh, it's a huge challenge. Um, one of the things, like earlier in the season, Munster got uh, smoked by the Sharks in their second round match, and that meant that they didn't have a quarterfinal match, semi-final match, final match in the Heineken Cup. So they have to run in where every match was a cup final for them, which... Uh, you know, in terms of qualifying, making sure they qualified for the Heineken Cup next year and then making sure they qualified, um, you know, making sure they, they got into the knockouts even at one stage. But, you know, you have throughout April and May, you have three rest weekends because you're, you're not in the European Cup. Um, and you can, you, can pick, you can pick the same sort of team because, uh, A, you're not saving them for a European Cup game, but also because, like, they get a rest in it. So, yeah, the the next, that's the next step for them. But my, my point when I was saying, like, it was specifically those two teams, La Rochelle and, and uh, Toulouse, is, like, when you, when you get to the point of actually playing them, you don't want to be playing 20, 21, 22-year-olds. 
you just want to be playing a bunch of lads who are like 26 through to 33. So while it's good to have, it's always good to have good players and good young players in your squad, like your Ruan, like the Ruan Quinn, Gleason, the Dogbo, Tom O'Hearn, they're not going to be, like you put them in against the Toulouse or La Rochelle and it's like, that doesn't get you over the line there. Can't even anything with kids. <laughs> and the thing is, like, Munster loved the Heineken Cup more than any team in the world. Well, but it is in the world. Because it's a lot of non-European teams. Mm. More than any team in the world, Munster loved the Heineken Cup. So if, if they're in Tottenham Hotspur Stadium next year, they will bring 30,000 people comfortably, if not yeah. 40,000. Like, all those people in London who... Uh, have Munster allegiances like they'll all go all the people from Munster who can get over to London by train by plane bus or, or boat rather like they'll all go so and there, there'll be a huge amount of excitement um, and that, that'll kind of make the decision for them you know but so like that could easily happen they could be playing Leinster in the final Jesus like it'll be absolutely mental Um Someone would have to beat La Rochelle then for us. <laughs> but that, that's that's kind of the... But that's the exciting thing for Irish rugby. You know, that you got you got two gun-slinging teams there. Um, this is a quick aside, but you kind of touch on it there. And seeing as we're kind of in the reviewing mode, how do you think the South African teams fared this year? You mentioned they, they all had like sort of poor exits in Europe. Yeah. And I think... You saw uh, in the final, the Stormers didn't have a great game. They lots, lots of mistakes. And I think Munster countered them very well. I thought Munster really got to grips with their aggressive counter, their uh, counter mauling or whatever you call it. Jacket. Yeah. They didn't. Well, the Stormers have, like a, they have two parts of a really good front row in Malherbe and Kitsoff. Their second row is fucking extremely ordinary for a South African team. And then... They've got like parts of a good back row, one of whom is 36 and small. Evan Roos, you know, I sort of don't like him, colors my view on him. When I say I sort of don't like him, I don't like him. It does color my view of him. I think he's a flat track bully. Uh, and all their, in my opinion, so they've got a front row, no second row, half a back row, and then they've got shitloads of pace in the backs. Centers are. Quite, quite good. Willemse is a superb player, and I really like Lebok, but he's like he he does, you know he he makes some big time errors. Um, like when when they came over and played them in the or we played them in the RDS, and I, I sort of expected them to be better than they were, and that was a I think a twenty all or twenty two all draw, uh. Yeah, very tough conditions. Um, and, you know, we had a answer to second string teammate. So I thought that going over there is tough. Uh, going over to play in front of, you know, 50,000 fans, 50,000 South African fans, maybe, you know, 3,000 Munster fans. Um, but Munster played a very smart game plan against them. And, and as some of the Stormers' game plan was daft. Absolutely daft. And Munster did like like your was it Ted that you were talking to uh, talking about from Limerick? Ross. Ross. Yeah, just um just like at halftime I was thinking the same, like Munster 
could have like been over the line here twice more than they had been. I was thinking like they're a little bit uh, profligate with their scoring chances. Um, so I was like I was I was watching it on the phone and I was fucking hammered. <laughs> so I don't remember it that well, but I do remember sort of feelings more than um, more than uh, more than events. But I, I thought that I was thinking like, oh, that's they've been a bit wasteful here. But the Stormers, Stormers didn't show. Um, they didn't show. They didn't show either. <laughs> like the smarts that you would expect from a champion team that were champions last year, uh, and nor did they show. Was more more smarts. Like they they tried hard. Really, the smarts that let them down. Um, I guess the. South African nationals, the, the South African international guys are still playing. They're they're playing in November, um, when when the league slows a bit. But um, I suppose the way the the knockout draw worked meant that you know w- w- one team, one of the teams, knocked out the other in in the quarters. So there there weren't two South African teams in the semi. I I certainly think that. South African guys are very good at knockout rugby. Um, difficult to beat in cup matches because their defence is so good. Um, they're they're prepared to take their points. I'm smiling. Uh, mm-hmm. They're prepared to take their points. They're they're prepared to k- kick drop goals, but mainly their defence is so good. Uh, mainly tackling, but also like just hustle, like that. that you know, ability to get into the right place, that willingness to get into the right place, like that that doggedness that they show, sort of covering across and chasing. And, you know, then other elements of it, like to be their jackling, be their, their sort of their line out play, very difficult knockout teams to play against. And you can see that from the national team as well in the World Cup. They're often, they're very, very difficult guys to beat. Um, so I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't discount them. I think the thing about South African teams is they, they're always going to have to travel more than everybody else in the URC, but it like the travel is better from them in the URC than it is in the Super Rugby. They don't have to change time zones. Um, They're changing actually the URC next year, so the South Africans will come and do a four match tour earlier in the season. Uh, so they'll play four games in their first tour, and then they'll play. They'll do another. They'll do another uh, tour where they play um, two games later in the season. So that cuts down on one whole set of there and back again. Yeah. So that's that's from next season onwards. But again, like I, I think the emergence of South African team has been really good for the Irish teams. I think the Irish teams have have upped their game as a as a consequence of South African opposition and just just exposure to it. And oh, unquestionably, it's made the league a stronger competition. Yeah. Uh, the league, I have to say, like I've I've my quibbles with some aspects of it, like. Just to get them and say them, like, you know, transcontinental travel is a massive fucking drain on the environment. Um, and it's very, it negates. Um, I would say they're getting on planes that are going anyway. Yeah, that's fair enough. But it also negates the nature of uh, away fans going to games, which was always relatively small in the URC because for the most part, you're getting on planes there anyway or boat. But mostly planes, really. Um, but in terms of their impact on the level of the competition, it's, it's the best the competition has been ever. And 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 the URC has 
sort of rebranded itself very successfully. That's it's part of it. That's sort of something which I think is more of an overall uh, vibe. But do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 graphics are better. It seems more uh, professional. There doesn't seem to be. Um, it's it's readily available. You can watch it everywhere. You can just watch games on URC TV and pay for it, which is super. So I think it is. I, I wasn't mean to say before it's not a good competition. I think it's the best it's ever been. Um, and the South Africans are the biggest the biggest part of that. I, I, I think two really simple stuff that. Uh, one, they have to make a big decision on the money. The other one, like, it's just the name. So, like, is it the Rabo? Is it the Magners? Is it the Guinness? Is it Pro 10, 14? How many numbers are in this? Is it Pro 12, Pro 10, 14? 10, 12, Pro 14. 10. So all that, that, that sponsor stroke number or sponsor plus number, that's gone. It's just the URC now. And the fact it's on terrestrial telly is deadly. And I know you're what you're saying about being able to download it, but... Like, you know yourself, even when you're on the proper download, the thing, like, it, it pixelates yeah, that's or true. it buffers or it freezes or you can't remember your password or all that sort of stuff. If it's on the telly, you just switch it on and you watch it and it works properly. Well, I was going to ask about the, you have this huge improvement by the influx of, like, uh, good South African teams because there's been South African teams in it for a long time. Yes. There's six years nearly, isn't yeah. it? So there's been South African teams in it for a long time, but it's the good, high-quality South African teams rather than the kind of... Ah, the... The, the cast-offs. Yeah, the stepchildren. And the other element, though, is that the Welsh teams are understandably going off a cliff and offering very little to the competition now. So, I mean, my gut feeling is that they're... They're only, they're only going to get worse or stagnate at the low level. No, I think on. I think yeah, I think that they will stagnate. Certainly, it's very difficult to see them getting worse. Like they, had, I think, four of the bottom six positions were were Welsh. Well, um, I think the problem is that it's easy to see one or more of them just cease to exist. Yeah, they should cut the dragons. Simple as that. Like but but I, I I mean, my concern is that that would no one from the dragons listens to us. That wouldn't make the other three any better. Like this this is the problem. Like. Welsh rugby just structurally gets in its own way so terribly badly. So often. So often that you're, you're sort of thinking to yourself, like, this is just going to cease to exist. This is just going to stop being a thing. You know, like that they're, it's, it's been on this slide, which, um, you know, the, the Grand Slams, uh, I don't know, like covered or 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 distracted from. Or, I believe the cliche you're looking for is papered over the cracks. Yeah, it, it was almost like a, it's like a, a trick of. Uh, like I look at Alan Wynne Jones and Tipperick and Reese Webb retired before the World Cup, and I sort of think to myself, Wales aren't going to make it out of their group, and it's it's going to bring into sharp contrast just how poorly managed their game has been for the last. Like 25 years. Yeah. Because when the Heineken Cup started, Cardiff played Bath in a match in Cardiff Arms Park beside the National Stadium before the Principality was built. And it was electric. Like the Welsh couldn't get enough of this. And y you could just argue, um, 
you know, like, is that not just because they were playing an English team? And it, it sort of, it was, but the, 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 the problem for the Welsh was that the English didn't want them in their league. And the Welsh just, just couldn't get their heads around that. Um, I don't know if that, but I, I don't know if that would have saved them. You know, like, I, I don't know if that would have been enough for their game because for all the players that they produce, like their 20s have been worse over the last three years than they were in the decade before. The decade before, they were good. But now they've stopped producing as many good... They've stopped producing good teams at underage level. They still produce good players, but they're not producing anything like the same caliber teams at underage level that they were for the previous decade. Yeah. Or two decades, which like is, is very concerning from Welsh rugby. And then the national team has got better at football. There's the possibility of, of Swansea playing... Premier football, there's the Netflix sensation of Wrexham in the north. And and you kind of say to yourself, like, that's all eyeballs and it's discretionary cash. And it's cash that doesn't go as far as it did 25 years ago. Like, Sterling's weak now. Mm. Can't see it getting and that Wales much, is I can't it? see it getting that much stronger. And, like, Wales isn't a prosperous area of the UK. So you're kind of like, this is just an area that's got, like, it's, it's just, it's slipping further and further behind where it was 25 years ago and it's very concerning yeah well like i think the thing about so certainly certainly welsh clubs they were better able to compete when they were amateur because it like all clubs were decentralized back then you were playing clubs versus clubs uh, and everyone was amateur so there was money in in yeah money in boots in england and in wales and in ireland to a degree so that was more of an equal playing thing. Once you get once you get into the professional game, it's how the game is funded. The Welsh have a mixed, have always had a sort of a mixed ownership slash some uh and no, you know, significant enough uh backing from the Welsh Rugby Union. But the Welsh Rugby Union also back a Welsh Premiership. It's their national national game. So they have a, a a second tier where lads are paid to play, and like which is from from the Irish perspective, you just I certainly look at that and go, it's a waste of fucking money. Like it's oh, it's totally an absolute waste, waste of money. Uh and I also think that their ownership model collapsed uh in the financial crisis. Like up until then you had, you know, enough Welsh wealthy Welsh patrons of rugby who were prepared to put in money, which was, you know, floating around all Western European all the Western world economies was coming in. So you had a very strong Ospreys, you had a strong Cardiff at one stage, that money just doesn't exist in Wales anymore, and I can't see it existing for. Gee, I, I don't know when it'll exist again. Wales is, is going like Wales isn't just a non-prosperous part of of the UK. It's not a prosperous part in the whole of like the fucking Western Europe. Um, so like my my feeling should be that the Welsh Rugby Union should essentially adopt wholesale the Irish model, and and centrally contract all their players, and. Um, and and cut a cut a yeah cut the dragons like Newport is something like twenty kilometers from Cardiff. It's not a big place to play. It's like having a team in Dublin. And I was criticised for comparing Newport to Greystones previously, which I did somewhere. But um, but that's what I'm talking. It's just the distance. Like you, those two clubs shouldn't be that close. Like Newport can go back to being Newport, you know, a good amateur club. And and Wales should just concentrate their resources in, you know, in in three teams and cut one. Uh, this sort of got on to what I was going to say earlier was every league has its growing pains. I was looking up at 
the foundation of the different um, pro leagues in England, France, and, and the top four are at the Pro 14 URC. Um, the, if you go back to the when when the the French league went pro in like 1996, 97, and look back, you can check it on Wikipedia, their system was bonkers. They had like three pools of eight and they'd play this thing and then they'd get into a repechange and half the team would be playing for, half of the remainders would be playing for like play for the bouquet and the other half would be playing against relegation. And like they had these constant changes up until about, so for about 14 or 15 years, they had about six different formats. Sometimes there'd be two pools of eight, sometimes there'd be one pool of one league of 16 until they got to 2010. And then they they nailed it down to the top 14. So leagues go through changes. And if you look back at the start of like, for example, the big successful league, leads like a football league one or the, the first division or the NFL, like very few of those teams are knocking around, you know, eight years later in the NFL or 140 years later. In, so like things take time to build and find their natural, uh, find their natural size. And like, who knows if a, a transcontinental league is, is going to be the way of the future, but this is a good iteration, the URC at the moment. And it's maybe this summer. Who knows? Probably not. I I I, I am curious, uh, but I'm gonna say probably not about seeing what the the residency model is of French clubs in their stadiums because I think my, my kind of instinct is that the the state at the at the federal level at, or at the canton level more I know France doesn't have cantons but that sort of idea supports French rugby in that you know you, you play in a municipal stadium so like Toulouse is like Toulouse own their own ground Toulouse but like there's a lot of money in Toulouse through Peugeot through Airbus a bigger and it's municipal ground in Toulouse and there's a bigger municipal ground in Toulouse play. you know so you you look at you look at all like you look at the problems that most clubs have and it's because like there are no tribunes they they don't own they have no tribunes they have no tribunes and they you know so they have to pay rent there's an uncertainty of where they are but it's also difficult to get your your fan base because you're going oh we moved to a big stadium in coventry and you're there going but like you're not from coventry coventry are from coventry mm. you're london irish you're or you're london wasps like you're you're from london there is a bloody team in Coventry. And Coventry is just down the road from Leicester. And like Coventry is David Duckham's club. You know, like Co Coventry has a history to itself. So mm -hmm. if you're going to put a team in Coventry, it's bloody Coventry. And this is this is where English rugby has has really struggled in that wherever the money kind of landed, as you're saying, like where it settled, um, it got to the wrong places. It got treated badly. So, and then, or else it got... the the money migrated people to play, you know, like there's Johnson talks about in his, in his biography and he talks about the, the, the geographical spread that they have. And it's, it must be frustrating for English rugby that like sale and Newcastle kind of haven't made more mm -hmm. of, of their sustained, um, tenancy of the premiership. And now, like that's enshrined in, in, 
in a company because they kind of have the place to themselves. So they should be able to garner bigger support than they are. Like there should be support in the Northeast for Newcastle. There should mm-hmm. be enough people that will go just, just by dint of it being mm-hmm. a nationally televised game and by the volume of people that live there, there certainly should be enough people to support sale. Like sales should be really strong. Even, even with the competition of league sales should be really strong. Um, but hold on a second. Here are the two things that stop you. One, it's all on BT, so it's all mega paywall. And two, you're a smaller team in a league where the team that cheats is fucking lauded all the time, and they get a slap on the wrist for two seasons. You can't compete with them, and they're back winning it again. The Saracens, yeah, yeah. The Saracens. Um, like, how does that not demoralize all the other teams in the league? I think people just get over it. In, like, you, you know, you have setbacks in your in your job. And you just go, well, that's now what it is. And you you just move on from it. I think people who are older in the game do remember that uh, more more and more. Um, people, uh, fucking rugby values. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like that there was, um, it was cheating, like flat out cheating. Uh, in terms of like what Saracens did when we were talking about stadiums and moving, like Saracens actually got one of their, their, you know, inventive and, and clever moves was was getting their own home and and changing and getting their local council, getting what would be their local council involved in their whatever the Stone X Stadium I think it's called. You know, and they built, they you know there was land there. They got involved with local council. They built the correct size stadium for them. Like that was, like he has been Nigel Ray, has is a is a wily guy, and he's not. He's not just like a cartoon villain. He's a bright guy. That's been a good move for him. Like I was looking at, like I think London Irish are done for, like absolutely done for. I don't see a way that this this takeover from fucking Alan Iverson and Ray Lewis, is, I just think that's absolute pie in the sky nonsense. Uh, and it's not going to happen. Like I was looking at the, the, the English, the Premier, where the Premiership teams are based just the other day. And it's surprising if you look at them where they're placed on the map, you actually get like almost quite good coverage. You've got Sale, Newcastle, sorry, cutting down, you go Newcastle, Sale, Leicester, Northampton, uh, Saracens, Harlequins, and at the moment, London, Irish, and London. And then you've got Bristol, Bath, Exeter, and Gloucester. So, what you're missing there, you've got a really strong uh, set west, you've got two strong teams in London. You've got two strong teams in the Midlands. You've got a team northeast, team northwest. Like they're they're missing a sort of a hump around Doncaster who have a team. But if you were to step in as the RFU as a potential backer, which I'm just this is pie in the sky thing, pie in the sky or blue sky thing or some nonsense. Like if the RFU are to step in and become a more equal. Uh, like to have a, to become a partner in the PRL rather than just a negotiating partner, and they have these, they have these you know agreements which they contracts every five years about player release. Like Mark McCall, who's the Saracens coach, to anybody who hasn't ever listened to this podcast before, was saying that he he's like now talking about uh, yeah we'd like central contracting. You know we don't get enough from our England players. We're paying them the full wedge, then they get money from England. And we don't see any of it. So there's, there's, there is momentum or certainly a desire to engage with central contracting uh, in one form 
from the Premiership clubs to the to the uh, or if you wish there never was before. The RFU has a stadium which is hundred like its capacity is one hundred and fifty percent of Lansdowne Road. Like it's exactly you know it's eighty two grand versus fifty five grand. So they bring in a lot of money. I was looking at their accounts. I'm not an accountant, but like they bring in a lot. Pre-COVID, they brought in a really significant amount of money. Like Ireland in like 18, 19, the IRFU brought in something like 87.4 million and the RFU brought in something like 231 million sterling. You know, so there is, now they're down more than 60 million, whereas the IRFU are up over the last four years. But the RFU has the capacity to turn over a load of money and it could potentially be a significant funder of, you know, a 10-team premiership. But that would be reliant on the PRL, um, for example, saying, yeah, it's it's a 51-49 split in terms of the direction of the league and league um, management. Uh, with with the with the lion share going to the RFU, if they're gonna if they're gonna say pay fifty percent of all English rugby player salaries and impose strict um, limitations, like a TIFF in France or as the RFU do in the in Ireland of saying, no, you can have like four non English qualified players in your squad of forty or forty four. Because I I just can't understand how weak English rugby is at the moment. Nor can yeah, I. I just can't understand the problems that they have. And the, the reason I mean is like La Rochelle has a population, the town, La Rochelle, has a population of 74,123, just on a Google. Twickenham has a capacity of 82,000 people. Yeah. So <laughs> to put that in context, like, and look, Sale were in the final, so like Sale aren't, of, of the premiership, so like Sale aren't a million miles away, but like Sale is in Manchester. Yeah. It's a completely different scale. So I, I can't understand, and like rugby is like rugby is a big game in England. Yeah. So I I I don't understand how they're so far off. Kind of what what the French are doing. I also think like it's what La Rochelle have done is absolutely marvelous, but it's it's also extremely difficult to see it being sustained because there's just not enough people there to to keep it going <laughs> like just constantly there isn't enough wealth in the area yeah there isn't enough people to constantly go um well like, like Brie, I, I think, Brie won I think the european cup before Brie won the european cup like i think this is just going to be an incredible joyous glorious time in the club's history but like they're not to lose no you know so so look i i don't know there's a lot of big picture stuff and there's, there's no answers here no I and i we, i normally don't talk about the big picture stuff but i think england is really um, like there's so many moving parts that are going wrong at the moment. You know, just so many things that are falling at the wayside. And like I was looking at London Irish's, like their staff. Uh, I was thinking about their staff, like all the people who are, you know, hoping that their current manager, who's basically or current owner, who's basically going to like, please somebody take this club off me, that he stumps up another month's wages. You know, a week later, two weeks later, whatever. You know, and then I was looking at they're playing. Population like London Irish have like twenty non English players in their squad of forty four. Like they, you know, four Argentines, four Australians, two Italians, two Scots, two Welsh, Fijian, Samoan, Zimbabwean, South African. 
There you go. You know, it's yeah, just a yeah. team. And like some of these guys are like are internationals. So it's like a team where they're going, this is, and London Irish were sort of renowned for having a good academy. Like a lot of their better players are play for other teams. So you're going like these, this, this model does not fucking work for you, buddy. Playing in a rented stadium with a load of ringers, load of ringers. So like if, if England, and I look back in the, when England were strong, when Leicester were strong, so the World Cup, well, actually like sort of second part of Woodward's tenure all the way through from 2000 to, to 2003, you know, going, the English League was just basically full of English lads, you know, and it made sure that there were shitloads of English players available for selection. And uh, it really helped the national team. And then the national team helped people you know, people were encouraged to go to the games because they were winning all the time. And it's 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 one of the most famous lines for me in English rugby was after Munster had beat Saracens back in what, 2000, 2001, Nigel Ray said, he, he was looking oh, yes, at yeah, the yeah. scenes and he goes, well, like, there's no place called Saracens. And he, he, was, he was keenly aware that, like, that sense of place and identity that Munster brought compared to his team of Galacticos with Pinar and Lyon and Sella it's no place called Saracens. Mm. I think the English PRL owners, and prior to that being an organization, they just thought that, like, they saw the Premier League in soccer and were like, oh, we'll just do that. England is a big international country. We're a rich country. We'll pay the best to come here. And then it turns out that in the kind of, like, private club sphere, they're not the big dog. France is the big dog. Yeah. And, like... The French are wild for it, and they go, they they go the game, and they're like, they have a huge big TV deal, and everyone's like, it's really happy and healthy, and it's really competitive, and there's loads more coming up. If you if you have a shit season, there's like another team coming up, a Pau, a Dax, a Breve, a, a Bayon to coming up to to give it a crack. Whereas in England, it's like eating trail finders. Oh, your, your ground's not big enough. You can't come up, even though you won the league. That that PRL has um, that PRL. Uh, method and I would call it PRL method of Mark McCafferty first who was very obnoxious um, but also the the bat owner was smoother but still quite obnoxious Stuart Craig Stuart Craig yeah. um, of Bruce, base, Bruce, Bruce Craig. Craig yeah of sort of talking down other leagues and other teams and saying well this is just it's the way it's going to be like there's oh, not a large part of me the whole of me is 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 hoping that they are finally coming to rec- recognition that like in 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 organizing team sports at the professional level you have to you have to be a canny business and yeah but you also have to sort of put value on the game and what other people think the people that you're going into uh competitions with and competitions against and that you're there obviously of mutual beneficial interest financial interest but also that there's a wider game which you can help grow or you can sort of just think oh, i can run all over this and you can hurt it and then you'll hurt yourself and i guess to we started off with the welsh clubs and it's it's very difficult to talk about specifics without basically doing a phd in this stuff like you have to spend a load of time researching to, to, to speak about authority but definitely the vibe i think we've grasped is that to me, the 
with the fact that there's so many trans-border leagues outside of France in Europe, you just sort of go, does it not end up with English teams playing against Irish teams, Welsh teams, Scottish teams, and the Safis in a time zone league that isn't French? And, you know, whether you do it in two pools and whether you split, like, you know, Leinster and Connacht are in one side and Ulster and Leinster are in the other side and, you know, Leinster play Connacht twice, but they play Ulster and Munster once. And, you know, so everybody has their derbies there at Christmas time, blah, 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 blah. And that you put it on, you know, like you figure out your TV deal. You know, do you, do you stream it a certain way? How do you, you know, how do you pool the money? Like, how do you make sure that it's, it's pretty competitive and it's pretty equitable? Or do you put it on terrestrial telly and stream to you know your your club accounts like do you do it that way and just grow the eyeballs that you kind of see it going that way because the premiership's a company like the premiership is a 13 like incorporated by 13 clubs three of whom are going to be gone by the end of the season i can't see london irish surviving unfortunately so like that that's fairly seismic but also like where we started this off just just to go back to it and to try to draw a line on it is you'd have to think that's the way the Welsh regions are going to go. Like, Wales are in, like, Wales are in trouble. Yeah, so the trouble... Wales Ruby's in trouble. Like, the, the WRU, which has backed the Dragons, has said, like, that was always a fixed term, which it was, um, and they're trying to find an owner for it. And they're not going to... Who would buy it, though? Well, that's exactly it. That is exactly it. Here's now, our worst team. We can't be arse fucking supporting it anymore. Do you want to buy it? Yeah, and your like... Into it. And like, like Newport is like Newport is a proud rugby town, um, but it can't support a pro team. Like it's not big enough. It doesn't have enough people living there. The team has always been perennially, you know, since I think they've had two winning seasons out of twenty in the uh, like they're the bottom dwellers. I just don't see it has a future as a pro rugby team. Like I really don't. But I also don't see that the the current Welsh funding, uh, the way that the WRU funds the game has a good future for Welsh rugby. And uh, I don't know if it's a sense of, like that there's so many subtleties that we can't understand about it, or if there's like, it's just staring in the face and you're going like, we are fucking too pig-headed to accept that the Irish who we look down on for most of our, you know, the older WRU guys, certainly, mm. who we look down on are right and we're wrong. You know, that like the Welsh Rugby Union, as I've said before in this podcast, it actually takes in more money per annum than the RRFU does. You know, um, and yet you've got like, and don't get me wrong, when you're saying papering over the cracks for the Welsh national team, like Gatlin did a fucking amazing job. They won a load of trophies. Oh, incredible. Uh, but their their game is on the slide their their every level of their game below the international team is on the slide has been on the slide for more than a decade and now their international team is on the slide so they do need to make major changes as as do the english um but i i think major like major changes have happened and major changes have accelerated in the last two seasons like the south africans moving from the sansar competition to the northern hemisphere competition like the same time zone competition mm-hmm. Is is enormous. Mm. Um, the fact that the Italians are getting better is like, are they going to fuck it up, or are they going to get better? Like, are, are they going to? Because th- there's 
there is the appearance that they're going to go down the Welsh route of funding the wrong level of rugby. They're going to fund that that level of rugby under elite, the elites of, of international rugby, which is where all the money is. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to slosh around Italy. Now, maybe they won't. Like, maybe there's enough good work has been done with the underage teams because they've had good underage teams mm. over the last four or five years that should graduate to being good international players that if, if they start winning matches, they should win more matches. And Italy is a wealthy country that that plays in a pretty good league. Like, you know, they're going to be playing against the Irish teams, going to be playing against the South African teams. Like, there's, there's a good quality of league there. You know, but like, it's... It's touch and go. It's touch and yeah. go with Italy, you know? There's like, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of change of foot, a lot of moving parts at the moment in in like big rugby countries. And um it's it's most of them are just like when I say moving parts, it's things coming off the parts, parts breaking. I guess what I mean is that like when the English League so the French League's always been strong. So when the English League was strong as well, you could kind of ignore what was going on. You could go, ah well, like, you know. Scots and the Irish and the, you know I tell you all have to play with each other you know nobody else wants to play with them mm-hmm. um, but it, it set up that sort of template for a cross-border league and then the Italians have have started to get better and there's there's wealth in Italy and you kind of go ooh like I mean this this could change things where there, there could be two strong Italian teams in a wealthy part of a wealthy country that like this could be quite big if they, if they could grow an identity. If those two teams could grow an identity and then you've got the six nations, like this could be quite significant. And it's it set the template then for the South Africans to join in as a cross-border league. So then you go, well, like, why stop there? Like, why not just bring England into it and make this basically there's, there's two, there's France and then there's the rest of Europe league. There's the Towns Cup leagues, you know? Mm-hmm. Um... So uh, I, I don't know. Like that, that that appears to me to be the the, the the direction of travel. Yeah, I agree. But there's a. I think there will be an issue with like all the URC countries are primarily union led, and I think that there will be a there will be re- resentment and suspicion of getting into bed if you're still dealing with PRL guys who are basically who you can't trust as far as you can throw. Who would always be trying to, to uh, yeah? Their, inter- their interests aren't aligned yeah. because it's the international game is the one that makes the money, and they're always going to come crying, looking for more money from the international game. But they're, they're conflicted mm-hmm. because they want to see their players more, but like their players get paid more by the national team, or as much for the national team, or their players want to play more for the national team than they want to play for their clubs. So, like, just the conflicts there don't work. Um, And the RFU, for example, on this, currently there's, like, I wouldn't say an exodus, but there's a significant number of English players leaving. The RFU, if they are going to have, if they're going to sort of, I wouldn't say save the PRLs too much, but if they're going to help the PRL to weather this and the English club game to weather this they're going to have to stick with not picking players who play abroad and say no you play in England otherwise more and more players will just go to France but the RFU's job is to do the best for English rugby it's not to do the best for the PRL no but the club game whether or not it's owned 
by PRL interest. Like that first division of the club game in England is it's a huge part of the game in England. It's a huge part of the game in England. So then I guess you look at the shareholding of club rugby and you go, the RFU step in as significant interest holders or majority interest holders of the clubs. And yeah, they and go, run the okay, league guys, properly. This is the governance of yeah. how your league is going to be run because we, we own you. Yeah. Now, you guys, you, you sort of your wealthy local burgers, you can be the other 49% or the other 66% or the other 75%, like whatever way the sort of the legal structure, the governance, the ownership model, whatever way they crunch it out, grant. And you, you can have your Gloucester, Worcester, whatever it is, but like strategically, we're going to set up in certain areas of the country and... Um, like we're going to go out and we're going to buy the bloody land. Like this is the investment that we're going to make. Mm. So this is the investment that we're going to make in return for owning 33, 45, 51% of you is we're going to own your stadium. And this is the way we're going to ring fence our league. And whether we just play against each other or whether we play cross border against the Irish, the Italians, the Safas, whatever it is, here's, this is the way. And we're going to align it. And like England win the World Cup at that. Yeah. Like a 10 team premiership is like that's any smaller than that it gets a bit ridiculous but 10 teams is, is very manageable it's an 18 game regular season plus knockouts plus european cup games i'm just saying as, as an english england only team england only league and if you can if you're if you're the rfu and you have a say in how those squads are composed and you say we're just doing what the french doing you have to be you know only a, a small number of your players can be non-english qualified then all of a sudden you just have a load of English players playing again, rather than just a load of players who are overpaid and like they have to stick with their salary cap that they have at the moment. This idea that, oh, we want superstars in. Like Pat Lamb just <laughs> running his mouth about upping the salary cap when like, three clubs have gone out of business in one year. Fucking, I just don't understand. There's such a gap between, in my imagination, where players come from in England and how they end up as professionals. I've no idea how it happens. Like they obviously mostly come from public schools, as they call them, mm-hmm. uh, and you know probably a certain part of English society. And then they they turn up at a club, like one of yeah. ten clubs based all around. A lot the of their clubs, a lot of a lot of smaller rugby clubs. Yeah, uh, you know. And so they, where does a Henry Arundel like appear from, and why isn't he the superstar rather than the twenty? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Like, uh, it's a really good question. Like, if England... I think, think Aaron went to, like, Harrow or something like that. Presumably, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, like, if those... If England is, like, was starting to produce the level of, like, per population, the level of players that Ireland was, would be producing, they wouldn't have any fucking problems staffing 10 teams, like... No, correct. In a second, like, they've... Yeah. Like, they've more, way more than 10 times our population. Like. Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting, wide-ranging discussion, uh, suitable, I think, for the end of season review. That wraps up our conversation about every league in the world and how it's all uh, finely structured uh, ballet. Someone needs to stop him. Someone needs to stop him. Someone needs to stop him. Farrell announced 42-man training squad taking place in June before friendlies in August, before World Cup starting in September. It all seems very soon. 
I think of World Cup finals taking place in November, but it's all like this is all the summer and it's it's actually happening. Um, you made a comment last week. How you thought two weeks ago uh, how Hodnett had um, probably gone past Will Connors in terms of that second slot at number seven, and he's kind of a surprise omission from the squad. Even it's a big squad, and he's probably the biggest surprise omission for me. Both of them are both of them are surprise omissions in in terms of he only has one open side. So um I look there's, there's 34 people going to the world uh, 33 people going to the world cup and I picked a team or a squad rather a few months ago now and had I think five guys in gold going four of these guys are going to go and three of them aren't. Sorry. Four of these guys are going to go, and one of them isn't. And that'll be your 33. So then... N- name names, who are those? I swapped the guys. So I had in Killer in gold, and af- at, after the weekend, before the naming, I said, well, Lockman's going to go. Then I had in uh, Prendergast slash Joe McCarthy. So I added slash Coombs to the kind of the 685 sort of slashy number. I had Hodnett going where I had Will Connors going. So I had five guys going in my back row. So I have Omani, Van der Fleer, Conan Doris, and I had Will Connors now. Then I had Hodnett after the weekend. And then I had McCluskey in gold and I had Larmer in gold. So then I put in Nash for Larmer and I looked at it more and I went, McCluskey definitely ain't going. So a few months ago, I just looked at it and I said, McCluskey ain't going to go. Like, Bundy needs to play matches. He never gets injured. Uh, matches are, are better for his fitness. Mm-hmm. So he's going to play every game. Um, and if he doesn't play games, it's because he's been dropped for Henshaw and Ringrose. Or sent off, you know? But, like, you're, you're kind of looking at it going, look, you know, Ireland's best centre combination at an international level, if everyone is really, really fit, like properly physically fit, not just capable of, of playing, is Izaki and, and Henshaw. To my mind, okay. um, and Bunny needs the game, so McCluskey ain't gonna go. He plays one position, and he's got two really good, strong competition for his place. And like one of them needs to play games every single week, so he's just not gonna go. So then I was I was really surprised that Hadnett didn't make the squad because I don't understand not bringing a second open side. I don't understand bringing an open side who gives you a different game. Like Josh, for all his strengths, is not a jackal threat whereas Hodnett is a jackal threat. And then Hodnett gives you ball carrying in a different way than Josh, but he gives you ball carrying. He's a super footballer. He's, he's Even if he hasn't trained that much, he'll be well able to fit in. So like, there's, been great a lot form. Of noise. there's been a lot of noise about Klein, but you go, look, Klein at this stage is a local hero. Like, you know, it's, it's almost good for Klein's legend that he hasn't made the Irish squad because it feeds the bitterness and it feeds the, well, you know, like you have to be twice as well if you're from Limerick or from the fucking Western Cape. But like, <laughs> like, and live in Limerick. But like, Klein isn't athletic enough. Like, as, as big and strong and powerful and hit things as he is, he's not athletic enough and he doesn't have innately the skills, the sort of the football and instinct that Farrell is looking for. Farrell picks athletes. So... Like, Klein was never going to make it. Now, Coombs might make it in, in that sort of slashy position. Um, but, like, you know, for the second rows are Tyke Byrne, James Ryan, Ian Henderson, Ryan Baird. They're all going. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that 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 sort of didn't surprise me. But and like, Nash and Nash doesn't surprise me because Nash is the sort of winger that uh, Farah loves. In that he's he's fit, he's industrious, he scores tries, he comes off his wing, he he gets involved an awful lot. And we talked about Balakun in the international games that he did play, and you just sort of go, games passing you by, man. Like Farrell wingers, this this doesn't like low and Conway when he was playing, but like low and Hansen are Farrell's ideal wingers. And if you're a winger in Ireland looking at Ireland play, like like how can you miss this? This is what he wants from you. Mm. Now, and I have to say, not all players can play like those. Not two. all players can play like these guys. Um, the, the one thing, like the one thing that immediately left out is me is like, who are you going to play at seven? Like you, you know, if Van der Feer is injured or even has a short injury or has a head knock and misses one of the World Cup games, you're going like Peter Omani or Keelan Doris. You think Doris? I think that's. You know, maybe that maybe that works. It's it's like it's it just strikes me as um like our our tournament run up is Romania first, Tonga second, South Africa third, um Scotland fourth, and then quarterfinal versus either France or, or New Zealand, providing we get that far. So you're going to the Romania game, you can pick whoever you want. Like any any Irish selection is gonna be Romania. Um and then Tonga are going this is gonna probably the best Tonga team that's ever uh, gone to a World Cup. T- Tonga's a really interesting one because they finished bottom of the Pacific Cup last year. So you're kind of going, right, like it's not like these guys are building on strong foundations and like throwing in a few former All Blacks and Izzy Falau. But you're going, even the fact that you can name those guys, uh, but Tonga are a good World Cup team and they always yeah. have been. Um, so Tonga. So then I was kind of thinking to myself, right? Like, how how did Tonga approach the World Cup, right? Because Tonga's first match is us, and then they play four matches in four weekends, so four matches in three weeks. Oh, so they're just going to gun for so us. So you kind of go like, if you're Tonga, do you have to gun for us, or do you go? We want to beat Scotland. Like, do you, do you, like do you go if we beat Scotland and Ireland, we go through. So the first two matches are the big ones for us. And South Africa is just like a bonus match. Fucking demolition derby. Demolition derby. But you go like, or do you go, right, like Scotland are the ones that we can, the most likely that we can pick off. And do we, like it's just impossible to see a team gunning for the Springboks ahead of Ireland. So you'd I agree. Have to, you'd have to think that Tonga are going to be going all out against us because we're the first match. Yeah. And just going, if we beat Ireland, we can beat Scotland the next week. And just like we Japan. Will beat, and we will beat Romania. And then the South Africa match doesn't matter. And then we're in the quarters. So that, that Tonga match for us is... Uh, yeah, so I think what I was getting to there, I look back at previous winning World Cup teams, 15, 19, especially 11 as well, but... They typically, what they do is they play there, the New Zealanders in, in 2015, South Africans 2019, they play rotated teams in their two-week pool games and then they just play their strongest team like for the rest of the five games. Both sides are relatively lucky with injury. South Africans incredibly lucky with injury. Um, but we're going to, I think, just play, rotate a team in to play against Romania. I don't think points difference is going to be an issue. And then I think we're just going to go strongest team against strongest, strongest team against South Africa, strongest team against Scotland, strongest team in the quarterfinal, and hopefully win a quarterfinal. 
But even even if you look at it, the South Africa match doesn't really matter. The matter the matches that matter for us are the Tongan match and the Scotland match, and there's three weeks between them. So we have to play our strongest team against Tonga because we have to make sure we win that. And South Africa is kind of up in the air, and we have to make sure. So like we basically have to make sure that we beat Tonga and Scotland, and we will beat Romania. Mm-hmm. And like the worst position for us is probably that we lose to Tonga and then beat, but like beat South Africa and Scotland, you know, because you're in a situation where Tonga then might even qualify, even if you win those three matches, because Tonga beat us, they beat Scotland, they beat Romania, South Africa. And they'd have a points target against Romania. And they'd have a points target against Romania. So like the Tonga match is enormous for us. Uh, And obviously, obviously the Scotland match is as well, but like it's, no, they're, no they're much, not expecting they're that. much bigger than the South Africa game. Mm. Um, then if, the, you win, if you win them, yeah. So okay. then the the rest of the squad. Uh, so he like Farrell really very clear cut on his his front rows. He picks basically the same nine front rowers every time he gets the chance. You know, it's it's Porter Healy, Kilcoyne, uh, Kelleher, she and Kelleher Herring. And then Tyg, Furlong, Philly Bielham, and Tom O'Toole. Like every time he gets a chance, he just picks those nine guys. They're the guys he likes. Sometimes Lockman comes in if Kilcoyne's injured, but he prefers Kilcoyne to Lockman. Um, and Tom Stewart has like, completely earned his addition. Like, you know, with his. Like, I, I was. I, I think Her- Herring's going to go ahead of him. I'd be unless Tom Stewart absolutely blows a lights out in training. Oh, Herring will go ahead of him. Like I, I think the thing that stands out from the t- the the panel that he mentioned is that if you look at the Six Nations thirty seven and the Autumn Internationals thirty seven, you you basically have to be Jack Crowley to get into it, and like mm. and, and Calvin Nash got into it. Everybody else has been there. Like the additional forwards that weren't there in the Six Nations squad are Treadwell. And Stewart Treadwell finished up in and, the Six Nations squad. So yeah, Treadwell and Stewart they both finished up in the Six Nations squad. And Treadwell was in the Autumn squad. And Treadwell toured and played in the Test matches. Mm-hmm. So Stewart's the only guy that's really got through there as yeah. an additional. And then Nash and like Crowley was in the Six Nations squad. So even though you sort of think he's 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 made a bolt, um, it's Osborne. Yeah. So like it's and Osborne hasn't played that much. So you look you look at it and you go like this is Team Farrell. I, I like Killer is the guy who I think is the luckiest to be in. Like Lockman has comfortably overly take overtaken him in Munster, and Lockman is in the Autumn squad. And I thought Michael Milne was definitely playing better than Killer in the latter half of the or the latter part of the season. But it's it's Team Farrell. He wants killer in the squad so whether killer brings good vibes and it's definitely been a season for the vibes man. it's one of the sort of things i was thinking during the week like if it's ron nogara and his and his, his table arrangements it's wig and his belief it's it's andy farrell and his, his carton bubble like there's isn't it isn't it isn't it, it there's it, it's been a huge season for the vibes man um and there's and this is what i was thinking because i was thinking why was i thinking of the 1970s LA Raiders team and the reason I was thinking of it was one of the America's games and it might be kick him in the head Ted Hendricks talking about Madden but so the the 1970s Raiders were complete misfits it was Al Davis's team it was an AFL team it was just win baby it was the vertical passing game and 
it was it was it, it was a team of, of renegades and misfits at a at a time where America were in a, like a major conflict. Like it was a violent time mm-hmm. in America. They were a violent team, but Madden understood them. And the description that was given of Madden was like, look, Madden was as good as anybody at X's and O's, but it was it was, it was his ability to kind of accept the misfits for what they were and to to mold them into a team was his his genius as a coach and i was i was thinking that about the vibes man is that like all these guys are really good technical rugby coaches but the kind of the differentiator for them is the vibes Mm. and it's it's a big season for vibes and maybe this is just a kind of a, a like a narrative thing because a few years ago it was all moneyball and stats and you know, mathematics will reveal the truth. Whereas now it's all like charismatic shaman. Well, it's like ev- everyone has the 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 program that does the maths now. So like, you're not getting that edge anymore. So what's the new edge, really? Like, seat seat arrangements at lunch. Seat yeah. arrangements. So, good vibe in the camp. Where do well, you sit? Who's good in the guitar? I, nice singing voice. I think the main thing talking about your feelings. I always think about this Irish team is and. I, I did it to myself anyway. Like when I saw the team announcement, I went to the 42 comment section. No, I did you? Ah, <laughs> I do it myself. And then I go, why? Why am I here? Drain the swamp. And I was just thinking, it's like people are like, oh, he doesn't pick on form, doesn't pick on form. You know, Shades Joe Smith is like, Farrell picks on form for Ireland because he, he, Ireland is a team in itself that has its own like form. It's not like just the agglomeration of the four yeah. of all the Irish players are available. To this them. isn't the fucking eighties. Yeah, it's like it's not like this isn't you know the president's selection where it's the fifteen best players get picked one in each position. It's like no, this is a team that he has built, and these are his guys. And like that's why Kieran Treadwell is there. He can't even get in like properly into the Ulster team. And he's like, like Farrell's like, yeah, he does a job for me though. Yeah, nobody's gonna give him. And Farrell loves Earlsy. Like he's there. He wants Earlsy mm. in his team because he he really likes him and he thinks like Earlsy's gonna like. We, we want him in the camp, you know, and if you're going to have a guy, like he wants those guys who are um, like the older guys, Keane Healy, Earlsy, guys who are, who might be fringe players in a World Cup squad, but like be a big fucking personality in a fringe player. Don't be like, I'm, you know, I'm a 21 year old fringe player who gets to play 20 minutes and, you know, doesn't really perform and then just goes into my shell or something like that. Yeah. So I think I think yeah I first of all I think I've missed a name somewhere from the squad completely so I, I can't figure out who that is. Frawley Earls, Earl, well Frawley was in the autumn, the autumn squad, and then I think he was injured. Injured, in the Six injured. no, he, so, so, yeah. So Frawley and 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 Frawley obviously tore during the summertime. Keelan Blade is there. Blade was not in the Six Nations or the autumn squad, so he's in addition. Earlsy yeah. was not in the Six Nations or the autumn squad. So Earl, now Earlsy toured. But definitely, um, they're at very different ends of the spectrum. So Blade is a very interesting one because he's been brought in from the cold. Mm. It's really, really difficult to be brought into the cold. He's like Nash. He he, he is a guy who has played himself into the into the squad. Um, but just just to go back to, I just I don't understand the lack of a second open side. No, nor do I, because there's no limit in who you can pick. Like, well, the other thing to who say even is- sit like when they're going like eight versus eight. Like, who even? Pakistan is the other open side. Yeah. In a, in a yeah. scrummaging practice. Like. So even, and like, y- you're not picking a sympathy guy. Like, Hodnett's man of the match in the final of the URC. Like, my, 
my monster players my monster player of the year is, is is Nash, but not not too far ahead of Hodnish. I, I I think Nash had a super season. He did. It's tough to pick. Like the the contenders there, from my point of view, Crowley obviously being one of them. Um, Daly, who's just played so much rugby. Um, Coombs, you know, who's key part of it. Uh, Hodnett and Klein. Like there's quite a number of players. Yeah. Um, so anyway, to, to wrap up the Irish discussion, what I'll say is there's 42 players in that squad. I think you named 42 because of the 42 comments website. <laughs> there is no chance that one of those players doesn't miss the World Cup through injury. Oh, so, like, so it's going to happen. So it's not just 42. There's, another, there's, there's more. But realistically, the guys who are beyond the 33 or maybe say 36 where the, you know, there's question marks around which the tight choices he'll make, like they're just there to fill in when one of those injuries happens. Like there's no bolters. There's no outside chances. Like you said, there's no one coming in from the cold. There's no Niall Murray in the squad like I thought there might be. Yeah, uh, well, but, he had a great season. That's a good point. But um, yeah, it, I mean, as I said, it's it. Ireland is its own team. They have their own form. They have their own continuity. They play every quarter of the year, roughly, and that's what that's what it's building on. Anyway, I'd like to say thank you to everyone for listening throughout the season. Thank you to everyone for nice comments and donations to us. Uh, it's very much appreciated. And it makes it very worthwhile. To, it makes it even more worthwhile to do. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you and good night. Thank you. Good evening. Digs like a demented mole there. friends of mine. Have I been doing? Have I been doing? If you really want to know the truth, I'm doing fine. Seventeen decisions in a row, and only five on points. The rest was all KO. Jackson and Johnson, Murphy and Bronson, one by one they come and one by one to dreamland they go. How's it done? You ask me, how's it done? I got a trainer man who taught me all I know. Sure feels good to have him in my corner. Hear his voice a whispering low. Big boy, remember, you must remember. Stand up and fight until you hear the bell. Stand toe to toe. Keep punching till you make your punches tell Show that crowd what you know Until you hear that bell, that final bell Stand up and fight like hell Munster beaten the Stormers to win the URC. 
in a uh, the third in a series of road victories that I immediately compared to the 2007 New York Giants, who won a Super Bowl entirely on the road, culminating in the the catch where the guy caught the ball against helmet. David Tyree. That's who, yeah, that's the one. All I remember is uh, the name of the quarterback. The quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> He's the brother there. <laughs> you can play that as our outro. <laughs> oh, cool blueberry on the <laughs> Okay, I've got, I've got a good, I've got a good start. Oh, it's the first annual. <laughs> Eli Manning. <laughs> I thought, you, I thought you didn't. You didn't know it. <laughs> I was just name as soon as I said it. I was like, name is gone. It's like a lie to say.